This is the Butterfly Podcast from the Butterfly Foundation, your national voice for people with body image issues and eating disorders. I'm Sam Iken. In the last episode, we challenged the stereotype that eating disorders were only experienced by women. We showed you how prevalent they were among men. In this episode, we're going to chip away at that misconception even further. We know that eating disorders don't discriminate. They can affect anyone, regardless of age, postcode, colour, culture, size, shape, gender identity or sexuality. And it's those last two categories that we're focusing on in this episode. We're going to find out why the LGBTIQA plus community is so overrepresented when it comes to eating disorders and body image issues and what we can do about it. But the system we live in isn't designed for LGBTI people. There is this constant performance that happen every day. I'm proof that you can completely lose control and be in a place where you would rather die from the abuse that you inflict on your body. A lot of it was to do with hitting the wrong puberty and trying to sort of self-medicate, I guess, through an eating disorder. Someone very close to me perceived my coming out as a byproduct of my relapse. And only on reflection, I realised how uh, defining that moment was for me. Firstly, let's talk about why it's so important to break the stereotype that eating disorders are only experienced by young, wealthy white women. We already know that about a million Australians are suffering from an eating disorder right now. And almost one in ten of us will in our lifetime. But a significant number of them don't identify as having one because they don't fit the stereotype. It's so bad that only 25% of people who need treatment or specialised care actually look for help. For the LGBTIQA plus community, the risks from these conditions are even higher. Same-sex attracted men, for example, seven times more likely to report binging and nearly 12 times more likely to report purging than heterosexual males. Two-thirds of people who identify as trans or gender diverse report limiting their eating because of their gender identity. Even as teenagers, there's research suggesting that gay, lesbian and bisexual people are at a higher risk than their hetero counterparts. We do know that minority stress plays into people's um, self-image and that's something that our community really faces. That's Tanya Lee. She's the head of Capacity Building for Q Life, which provides free and anonymous LGBTI peer support and referrals right around Australia. So being a queer person who who is facing all of these things every day, it would be really easy to let any of those health issues slide, particularly if you don't feel that, you, you know, there is a safe or comfortable service to access. And I think you're right, with eating disorders being such a private thing that's often hidden, I think it's really easy for that one, that one to slide. It's not um, a health issue that your friends or family are necessarily going to notice or feel comfortable or have the language to have a conversation about. So I think it would be very easy for people to say, you're right to say, I'm going to deal with that later. There's enough going on. All the research suggests that this community needs more help with eating disorders and body image issues. But everyone and every group within the community all have different challenges of their own. This is not a case of one size fits all. Being in a same-sex relationship, I think, at least for me, has the potential to become a breeding ground for comparison and competition in a way that I'm not sure, for myself at least, would play out the same in hetero relationships. When she was growing up, Katie's eating disorder was linked to the increasingly obvious fact that she simply didn't fit the heteronormative model. I first started to struggle with body image and food 
when I was in um, my last handful of years in high school and I always felt a bit on the outer and also acutely aware that I didn't feel like I fit in or that I was on the same pathway as my peers. I mean, in terms of getting like crushes on boys or um, similar interests. Uh, and I back then I genuinely didn't understand why. I just convinced myself that there was something wrong with me. And, you know, even magazines at that time aimed at teen girls because gender binary um, were all through like a heteronormative lens and, you know, like how to get boys to like you, special sealed sections with instructions for moves that will drive boys wild, makeup tips, dieting tips. It, yeah, it was, I guess, loud and continuous confirmation that you don't fit in with what society thinks you should be. My community faces really high rates of eating disorders, um, but really low rates of seeking treatment. Kai identifies as gender diverse. For him, his eating disorder and his gender identity are directly linked. I don't think that I would have developed an eating disorder if I wasn't trans, because for me, so much of it was this puberty is happening and it's wrong. And whether I was sort of self-aware of it or not, I was really just desperate to just stop that from happening. And um, unfortunately, when you limit your food intake your, uh, and you're assigned female at birth, your, your period stops. You stop developing breasts. All the things that were causing me distress were things that I could sort of stop through really unhealthy behaviors, um, which ideally I wouldn't have needed to do. And I could have you know, gotten medical care that could have done that in a much healthier and less damaging way. It wasn't necessarily conscious, but looking back, that was very much a part of what was going on for me. What will often happen is that the individual transitioning wants to embody the gender to which they're transitioning. At Melbourne University, Dr Scott Griffiths is the expert we spoke to in the last episode. He's one of the top minds in the world when it comes to eating disorders among homosexual men and the trans community. So if you're transitioning to a male body, then it's pretty common that you want your body to reflect that as much as possible. And one way to do that is through diet and exercise. And you can imagine that all of that focus on dieting and exercise to build a particular body type can create the sort of environment where an eating disorder can flourish. Not to mention that if you do transition, that society expects you to conform to that body type if it's the gender you're going for. So it's not even an issue of body image and appearance. It can become one of of discrimination and personal safety. So a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to the LGBTI community simply won't work. Dr Griffiths says it needs a tailored approach and healthcare professionals need to have specialised training or even better, first-hand knowledge of these communities. You really have to have a holistic understanding of what it's like to be a trans individual and to be undergoing a reassignment. And the current offerings we have are not tailored to that. There's just not enough research and not enough, not enough in the way of resources for it yet. Um, I think that's probably the best example of a group that is drastically underserved. A lot of it is stigma and 
the people in my community are already facing lots of stigma from their existence and their identity, they don't want to add any more layers to that. And people tend to think that all trans people are inherently mentally ill because of who we are, um, when really there's high rates of mental health issues because of discrimination and other factors. Kai says that the stigma and that unhelpful stereotype surrounding eating disorders is a massive barrier to people in his community going and getting help in the first place. In my head, you know, eating disorders were a girl's thing and I am not a girl, so they can't, it can't be something that I have. I just am sick and I'm dealing with it and it's fine, but I, like, I found it very difficult to accept the diagnosis label of that just because of what, in my head, that meant. And obviously it's not true. Not all people who experience eating disorders are women. In fact, a larger portion of people aren't. But, you know, that's the sort of the representation that I'd seen as a young person. Um, And it's exciting to see that that's slowly starting to change now. And I think that would have made a difference to how early I'd reached out for help, probably. The more we explore the relationship between eating disorders and the LGBTIQA plus community, the more we see how diverse these disorders can be. So when it comes to prevention, intervention, treatment and recovery, one size will never fit all. But to tailor treatment plans and programs, we need to understand the situation better. And to do that, we need research, and that takes funding. Dr Griffith says there's not a lot of data available for same-sex attracted women. That's not to say that lesbians don't also struggle. It's just that we don't run research um, uh, with lesbians. So really we speak to the experiences of gay men, bisexual men and trans men and women. There isn't a lot of funding around for LGBTI health research. There are a couple of great um, longitudinal studies that happen over the years. The SWASH study, for example, talks about same-sex attracted women and their drug use, um, drug and alcohol use, but there's, there are not a lot of kind of broader health surveys for our communities. So it's, it is really hard to get that accurate data. So the research isn't there yet, but that doesn't mean same-sex attracted women aren't struggling with eating disorders. I've felt internal pressure or a jolt of anxiety when women I've been in relationships with have, say, gone on a health kick or started working out or um, to critiquing their bodies, partly because it would be pretty easy for me um, to spiral backwards in an environment that's largely intimate and focused on body type, but also perhaps because we live in a world where the loudest messaging um, that women often hear focuses on you know, the physical attributes that are associated with successful and attractive women, and it takes a lot of self-awareness to recognise if I'm going into a toxic place in a same-sex relationship that's becoming too focused on, oh, our, our bodies look different. Is my body bigger than yours? Um, do I fit in your clothes? Oh, I must be fat. Oh, I must be slipping. Um, I'm a, In a way that, like, when I've dated men, I, I yeah, our, our bodies are so different anyway that it doesn't, I, it, the, the, the wiring in thinking isn't there for me. So not fitting the stereotype is one reason why people tend not to reach out. 
Another is because they have had poor health service experiences in the past, experiencing discrimination, for example. They'll have greater difficulty reaching out in future. And Tanya Lee says those kind of experiences are really common in her community. Many parts of our community have suffered forced medicalised treatment. Um, yes. So if you look at intersex people within our community, they've had these really negative uh, forced medical interventions. So there, there is already a fear and a distrust around um, the medical, medical practices in general. So it's something to bear in mind as well, um, understanding working with people who have past trauma. A lot of the body image concerns for same-sex attracted men are initially adapted from heterosexual men, according to Dr Griffiths, and when the desire to attain that particular body type becomes pathological through diet and exercise, that's when you run into problems. But he says there are more layers to it for the gay community. There are additional issues in the gay community around appearance pressure and stigmatization if you don't look a particular way. We get anecdotes and anecdotal reports all the time from members of the gay community of um, appearance-based favoritism and discrimination that is often more overt than what you would see levelled against heterosexual men. There's a sense of appearance hothousing, that its value in gay male communities is conspicuously high. As a gay man, there are very rigid appearance ideals within that and there is some degree some toxicity in the gay community around uh, if you don't look this way we'll reject you we heard from mitch for the first time in episode two men we need to talk there's this intra-group um, kind of rejection that is that is happening and that i've noticed and particularly on on certain apps and stuff like that there is very there is a lot of language and dialogue around if you don't look this certain way well then we'll, we'll basically just reject you As we heard in the last episode, men are reluctant to ask for help because it doesn't conform with their notion of masculinity. Asking for help can be seen as a sign of weakness, and those unhealthy ideals are also present in the gay community. I think gay men often proffer reasons that are similar to that of heterosexual men for not seeking treatment. We talk about traditional notions of masculinity, and we think reflexively of heterosexual men, but There are masculinities in gay culture, gay male culture as well. And whilst they differ from the masculinities in heterosexual communities, there are some similarities. And some of those are being self-reliant, being in control of your emotions, having your shit together, being um, independently able to take care of yourself. These are present in gay masculinities as well. And to the extent you believe in those and you start to feel like you're coming undone by these appearance-related, diet-related, exercise-related issues, you might be reluctant to go and seek help because you really just want to get on top of it yourself. So it's from where you derive your self-worth and self-esteem and identity, being able to do that. So that is a very common reason why gay men won't go forward for treatment. Reaching out for help was was challenging because it was admitting 
A, that I had a problem and as a man, sometimes problems are perceived as weakness um, and that we should be stoic in the face of those challenges um, and get up, get on with it, get over it. But for me, it was a very gradual process of reframing what I perceive to be strength and what I perceive to be weakness. And I've always said, and I will continue to say that I believe making an attempt to seek help and seeking help is one of the greatest demonstrations of courage, strength and resilience that not only a man, but a person can do because it's, it's, uh, really leaning into that vulnerability and saying I need I need help I don't know how to navigate my way out of this by myself and I need someone else's eyes on that and while getting over the manly reluctance to ask for help was a big deal for Mitch he also had to face some very confronting opinions from people that he loved it was a very challenging point and I've only really been able to reflect on that in in the past couple of years on how challenging that was to come out during a a very intense relapse because someone very close to me perceived my coming out as a byproduct of my relapse. And that was incredibly hard to to navigate. Again, only on reflection, I realized how uh, defining that moment was for me to understand what my sexuality meant at that point. And it was it was completely shameful at that point to to come out, to make that leap, to come out in an already vulnerable period of my life and to have someone dear in my life put it down to it being a byproduct of an eating disorder was so just, it just angers me now. And I'm, I'm, I'm still working through that, that kind of resentment towards that moment um, because it's not that there's nothing there is nothing wrong with my sexuality uh absolutely nothing and to put it down to it being a byproduct of what was the most harrowing thing in my life it it dims the light on just how proud i am to be a gay man services that are out there are mainstream services. They're not LGBTI-specific services. And the way that they are promoted is does have a really feminine skewer. It's more than just sticking a rainbow sticker on the door um, to get people in it. That that really, that work has to be done broadly across, across the service. And then through word of mouth, communities, our communities will always go to other LGBTI people first for information and support. Yes. So it's then getting that word of mouth out there that services are safe. Gender and sexuality are really complex issues. When those issues are compounded with mental health issues like eating disorders, we can get an understanding of how the LGBTIQA plus community is so badly affected and why it's so important to provide safe, accessible and specialised care. It's often... Um, a health condition that, that stays really secret for people. It's, there is a lot of shame connected to it. So I think the first thing that we need to do is make our community members feel safe to talk about this amongst themselves. And I think that's uh, the way that we can do that is by starting conversations on social media, by cross-promoting services together like this, by um, making podcasts and interviews like this available um, and, and having the conversation within community. While we're working on creating a safer future, the advice we can give to people who are struggling right now 
is that talking helps. Talking to someone, anyone, is the first step towards recovery. But if you're not ready to talk yourself, listening to others who've been there before is the next best thing. In terms of being a gay man, I think there are long-standing kind of uh, systemic and societal influences in that as well that make reaching out for help challenging because uh, we don't know the health professional's stance on homosexuality, on um, on what it means to be an LGBTQIA plus person. Uh, and, you know, it was only up until 1973 that homosexuality was a diagnosable mental disorder in the DSM. So there is still kind of, in my mind, a, a lot that we need to do as a culture around uh, facilitating meaningful and inclusive interactions um, on both parts on both the health professional and the systems in which they belong um, because there is a still a perception that if I disclose my sexuality to someone am I going to be pathologized which is challenging when you're going them to people to try and get them to help you I mean everyone carries a story and and when if you're if you keep your story to yourself you're the only one critiquing it to, to be able to put it out there and to get others perspective on things I think can be a breath of fresh air for me to share my story um, and invite other people to share their story or to kind of reflect with me on my experiences helps me to learn and grow and um, maybe understand myself and how I've arrived at certain places in a, in a bit more depth in maybe in a way that if I kept it all upstairs in my head I wouldn't I wouldn't have that same opportunity I share my own personal experience to try and encourage more people to get the support they need um, and my own experience informs the sort of like research and like interest that I have in the academic side of all of this that hopefully once we understand more about eating disorders in LGBTIQA plus people um, will be able to sort of streamline the kind of treatment that people receive. Um, and that's been sort of my my fight for a couple of years now is doing lots of presentations on um, eating disorders amongst um, LGBTIQA plus people and particularly trans people to all the health professionals that will listen to me um, and all of the academics that will listen and just trying to get that understanding out there that this is uh, a common issue that people need to uh, be prepared for in their clinical practice. Making that first step to reach out and tell somebody that you need help is really hard. And if you're at that point right now, I see you. And there are services that make no assumptions about your story and will not discriminate. QLife provides anonymous, free LGBTI peer support and referral for people in Australia who want to talk about sexuality, identity, gender, bodies, feelings and relationships. Each state and territory has their own services. If you look up QLife, you'll find one near you. To talk about eating disorders, the Butterfly National Helpline has counsellors who receive regular LGBTIQA plus training, and they're committed to providing free, confidential, non-judgmental counselling. They can provide referrals and information to anyone experiencing an eating disorder or body image issue, as well as friends and family. The number to call is one 800 
4673. That's 1-800-ED-HOPE. You can also chat online or email support at butterfly.org.au. If you want to talk about anything that we've raised in this podcast, please reach out. If you're a social media butterfly, then jump on your favorite platform and get in touch. You can find all of the links for Butterfly Foundation at butterfly.org.au. You can look me up. I'm Sam underscore Iken on Twitter. And if you like the Butterfly podcast, please tell a friend and subscribe wherever you get podcasts. The Butterfly podcast is an Iken Media production for Butterfly Foundation. It's written, produced, edited, and hosted by me, Sam Iken, with an exceptional amount of help from Camilla Beckett, Mitch Doyle, and Belinda Kerslake. The theme music is from Cody Martin, with additional music from Breakmaster Cylinder. And thanks to Dr. Scott Griffiths from the University of Melbourne and Tanya Lee from Q Life. Special thanks to Kai, Katie, and Mitch. <laughs>